Now let's uh, turn once again in our Bibles as we work through the pastoral epistles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Our focus this morning must be on the first nine verses only, but I want to read the entirety of the chapter and we will refer to a couple of verses um, in the remainder of the chapter as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's bow briefly in prayer. Our Father, as we come to this very familiar text, but a text that perhaps we've not thought upon as much as we should, we ask that your people will be built up in the faith and that you will use us for your glory as we go from this place filled with the knowledge of your word. Give to us aggressiveness in sharing our faith. Give to us the ability to look at a needy world and to see where that world is apart from Christ and help us to live godly lives in this present evil age. For those who are among us today who do not know the Lord Jesus, we pray that their hearts will be submitted by your grace to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Yes, even this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work." Now let me draw your attention first of all to verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So the Apostle Paul opens this chapter by discussing apostasy in the last days. 
And by apostasy, he has in mind primarily defection from the truth in the church. And so in verse 14, he essentially says to the apostle, remain firm, stay the course. What the apostle Paul, what God says to us through Paul's words this morning to us in this present evil age is the very same thing. Uh, Stay the course, remain firm, Uh, love God, love his truth. Uh, be obedient as Christians. Do not be influenced by the worldview of the world around you. Because a falling away from the truth in the church is coming. Indeed is here and will grow worse. So the first thing we want to see as we look at the text, and you must have the text open in front of you, is apostasy in the last days. Apostasy in the last days. But understand this, actually very literally, know this, know this. The word could be translated, difficult, dangerous, or evil times will come. You remember in the prior chapter, just to give an example, in verse 21, he said, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. That's where he is saying to the Apostle Paul he must purge himself from the false teachers that are there in the church. In verse 23, have nothing to do, that's in the prior chapter, chapter 2, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So all along he's been saying to Timothy, Timothy, look, Give yourself over to the study of Scripture. Give yourself over to ministering this Word. You be a faithful man of God and stay away from false teaching. Well, here in chapter 3 we find that apostasy is coming. When? He says, in the last days. Look at verse 1. But know this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Perilous times will come, says the authorized version uh, so beautifully. Difficult, dangerous, evil times are coming in the last days. What does he mean by the last days? Well, had we time to look at the Old Testament, you would see that when Messiah appears, that is when the last days begins. So when Jesus Christ came into this world, when God became flesh and dwelt among us, the last days began. Perhaps peculiarly, we can say, from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ until his return, We live in the last days, this present evil age, as Paul calls it in the book of Galatians. And so we live in the last days. Let's look at a couple of passages. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 1, uh, verse 1, the writer says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways... You see, he has the whole progress of redemptive history in mind here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now turn, if you will, to First um, John chapter 2. Verse 18, 1 John 2, 18, here John the Apostle says, 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour, 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. So what John in 1 John 2 calls the last hour, the writer of Hebrews and the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy calls the last days. Put it this way, that on God's eschatological clock, the next great event is the return of Jesus Christ, ending the last days. The next great event on God's eschatological clock is the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And so it's five minutes of twelve. Because the next great event, you see, is the striking of twelve on the clock. Only we don't know how long five minutes is on an eschatological clock. And so it may be in three months, it may be in 30 years, it may be in 300 years, it may be 3,000 years. The point is, this is God's timing, His eschatological clock, and we live in the last days. So with this broad time frame, the Apostle says here in verse 1 of chapter 3 in 2 Timothy, with this broad time frame, some periods, he uses the term chiroi, some time frames, some periods will be very difficult to endure, colopoid, very hard, difficult to endure. It will not be absolutely the same throughout the period, and we have seen there have been great reformations and renewals, but nonetheless there will be progress in evil in this time called the last days. So in 2 Timothy 3, where we are in verses 12 and 13, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You will remember how in 1 Timothy chapter 4, as we worked our way through, He began chapter 4 of 1 Timothy by saying, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So apostasy is something that will happen in the church as the world grows worse and worse, so also apostasy in the church. Apostasy climaxes, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, in the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, sometimes called the Antichrist. The point is, in this period called the last days, we're always in battle. The church is always doing battle for the kingdom, for the cause of righteousness, and against the kingdom of Satan. So as we go along, it will be clear that Paul's emphasis in this chapter is on apostasy in the church. These opening verses, these opening verses in which he describes culture, if you will, the the heart of man, you will say, well, he seems to be describing the world out there and not the church. But in verses 5 and 6 in particular, I think you see he's referencing the church having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people from among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women and so forth. It's a reference to the church. But you see, that's the whole point. Apostasy occurs as the church goes the way of the world. When we open our hearts to the world, when the church opens its doors to the world, 
Apostasy is the sure result. Defection from the truth, from love of God, our hearts grow cold, and indeed the lost begin to fill the leadership positions in the church. So the stress is on apostasy in the church, a falling away in the church. And again, 2 Thessalonians tells us that the apostasy culminates in the man of sin. So Paul is saying to Timothy, his young protege, you better be ready. I mean, you had better know what's coming. Live for Christ. There's a battle until Christ comes again. And that needs to be your mentality as a pastor. And it needs to be your mentality too, folks. Let me ask, is it? Uh, Are you determined in your thinking, in your attitude, and in your heart by this great reality that you are a Christian in a fallen world, but also in the last days in which we have peculiar responsibilities to take the gospel out into the world, and that we are going to be opposed, and that evil is going to grow worse and worse? By the way, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you really ought to think about this. If The return of Christ is next on God's eschatological clock, the striking of 12. That's the next big event. And we don't know when it's coming. If I were you, I'd be ready. Because the Bible says that if you die in your sins, you'll go to hell. I don't like saying that. That is to say, it doesn't bring me pleasure. But it's what the Bible teaches, you see. And when Christ comes again, there will be the resurrection, the general resurrection, and he will cast both body and soul of the unbeliever into hell forever. If I were you, I would be ready. So that's the first thing we see in the text, apostasy in the last days. The second thing, apostates described, apostates described, false doctrine and ungodly living go hand in hand. It always has, it always will. False doctrine and ungodly living go together. So I want us to work through this list that begins here in verse 2. He says, this is what it will be like in the last days, these difficult, hard, perilous times. He says that people will be lovers of self. Now in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 5, verse 15, that Christ died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The point that Paul is making there is that we live for ourselves. We love ourselves and that Christ came to deliver us from self-love and for, from living for, for ourselves. Self-love is the, the font that poisons everything. That's why it's at the head of the list. That's why it's first. Everything flows out of this self-love. Now the modern church, and this is a greater discussion than I can do now, but the modern church is filled with the self-esteem movement. We're told that we must love ourselves, and our great problem is that we don't love ourselves, and if we'll just start loving ourselves, then everything will be okay, and, and the church is full of that too. But actually, the Bible says the opposite. The great problem is that we do love ourselves. That's our problem. We're sinners. We're lawbreakers. We love ourselves. We don't love God. We don't love His Word. We love ourselves. That's our great problem. 
You say, well, the Bible says that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It doesn't command you to love yourself. It says you do. It just acknowledges that you do. Nowhere does the Bible say love yourself. Nowhere. Love God, love your neighbor. It never commands you to love yourself. And our fathers certainly did not speak in that, in that way. They wrote what almost no one would write today. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? That's how our fathers wrote. That's what they thought. And I think they were right and we are wrong. Self-love is at the bottom of murder, the destruction of modesty, the destruction of the home, the murder of countless unborn, the destruction of marriage. Self-love is at the root of it all. The problem is, you love yourself and so do I. We need Christ to deliver us from that self-love. He goes on in the list. He says, lovers of money. Remember that in 1 Timothy 6.10, the Apostle Paul says that the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. He says that men in the last days will be boastful. A.T. Robertson translates it, empty pretender. You remember the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. The writer describes the church in this way in Revelation 3.17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Boastful, you see. Boastful. But the Christian, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, by whom the world has been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Our boast now is in Christ, not in ourselves. Haughty, boastful, haughty. God is taking away that haughtiness and teaching us to boast in Christ. Blasphemoi, railers. Uh, We tend to think of blasphemy as against God, and it is, but in the New Testament it's a much broader concept, railing against God, railing against men. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.13 that he was a blasphemer until God showed him mercy. Notice in the list, children, that it says disobedient to parents. You see that, don't you? Disobedient to their parents. All sinners are going to be disobedient. We need Christ to redeem our hearts. But little children should also be warned because apostasy can show very, very early in the heart and in the life. And as we see the destruction and disintegration of the home in our culture, things going from bad to worse, as Paul put it, what do we see but children running their parents and A child can bore a hole in the grand piano and never be disciplined. It's an amazing thing, disobedience to parents. Unthankful. Now, many of these things, if you take this and you read Romans 1, you will find at the end of Romans 1 and in other places in that chapter a list, and you will find many of these things paralleled in Romans chapter 1. Lack of gratitude being one of them. They did not care to know God, and they were ungrateful, unthankful. Ingratitude is a sure mark of a lost soul. Unthankful. Look at the list. It says unholy. Ingratitude leads to an unholy life. 
without natural affection. What does Paul mean there? Affection and natural relationships. He's talking about the destruction of the home. Husbands and wives, children, natural relationships deteriorating in the home. In verse 3, he goes on with the list. He says, truce breakers. In other words, men won't keep their agreements. They won't keep their vows. Uh, Marriage, the church, the vows. Diaboloi. You hear diabolic there? Slanderers. Without self-control. MTV. Fierce. Like beasts. Men created in God's image, fallen, now acting like beasts, fierce, no lover of good. So that in Romans chapter 1, he says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In Isaiah 5.20, we find an example of no lover of good. Isaiah the prophet said, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And if ever we have seen an acceleration in calling darkness and light by their opposites, calling that which is sweet bitter and what is bitter sweet, surely it is today. In verse 4, he goes on, traitors, just as Judas was a traitor to the Lord Jesus, the church will be filled with traitors. Headstrong, regardless of, of, of who it hurts, puffed up, men will be puffed up, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. One of the reasons that I'm concerned about entertainment approaches to worship is right here, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, someone has translated the outward shape without the reality. Having a form of godliness, you know, you act like a Christian, but in your heart, there's just dead men's bones. You deny the power of true religion, that is the gospel. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And in verse 5b, he says, avoid such people. Look at it. Avoid such people. It's a present imperative, middle. It's command. Continually turn from such people is what it means. Then he goes on in verse 6, and he says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Now Paul has the greatest respect for godly women, many of whom have helped him in his ministry, and he commends them in his epistles. But every age has women who are very easy prey to false teachers. It goes all the way back to Eden. William Hendrickson says, also today, as many can testify, the men who visit the women in order to ensnare them fail to take sin seriously, often deny everlasting punishment, and in general proclaim a religion which satisfies the flesh. Homer Kent says, 
This type of woman, perhaps neurotic and depressed by the guilt of sin, is easily led astray by religious quacks who may satisfy the desire for some sort of religion without demanding abandonment of sins. Church history is full of female victims and companions of false religionists from the tradition of Simon Magus and Helena to the multitudinous wives of Brigham Young. Satan's method is in the garden was to insinuate himself into the confidence of Eve. So these women are, according to verse 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's talking about the women here in verse 7. A.T. Robertson puts it this way, pathetic picture of these hypnotized women without intellectual power to cut through the fog of words, and though always learning scraps of things, they never come into the full knowledge of the truth in Christ, and yet they even pride themselves on belonging to the intelligentsia. He goes on in this list, quite a list, wouldn't you say? He goes on, he says, apostates oppose the truth, verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Very strong words. Janus and Jambres were names passed down by oral tradition of the magicians who opposed Moses and attempted to imitate the Lord's miracles through Moses. That's why we read from what, what we did in Exodus this morning. Perhaps Paul wants to underscore the imitative aspect of the opposition. Moses was true, they were not, but it was not immediately evident that they were not true and that Moses was. But it becomes obvious. Their cheap imitation was exposed. And so present-day apostates resist the truth, their minds being corrupt. Now, that's the list. And I think it's important that we've gone through the list. Don't you? It's a a profound picture of the last days. Paul wants us to linger over the words. And remember, the font of it all is, verse 2, people will be lovers of self. Third thing we see in the text, apostasy defeated. Apostasy defeated. It would be pretty depressing simply to read the description of the apostates and then leave it there. The point of Janus and Jambres, in part, is that apostasy may appear to prevail, but it will be defeated. Look at verses 8 and 9 together. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So Janus and Jambres did not prevail. So the folly, Paul uses actually the word anoia, that means senselessness, the senselessness of false teachers will be made evident to all. But it does a lot of damage along the way. God will always have a faithful people. Exodus 7.12, For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. The false teachers will be exposed, but God always has his people, 
2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God has a people. He knows them. He will keep us. He will preserve us. So eventually, he says, there in Ephesus, the truth will out and false teachers will be exposed. And every defeat of apostasy in this present evil age points ahead to the great defeat of apostasy at the return of Jesus Christ. When he returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, but to be admired of his saints. Now let's draw the threads together with some final observations and exhortations. What we've been seeing in this passage is the last days are perilous, times of great danger, and frankly the true church is probably in the present time in our country much smaller than what it appears to be. So... Because we live in these perilous, dangerous times, I'm going to bring five exhortations. My first exhortation to us as a congregation, to you as a Christian, is be alert. Be alert. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. in which Peter, who also is dwelling upon persecution in the last days, 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. You there? 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You better watch out, he says. Be prepared. The devil is seeking to devour you. Be alert. Jesus said in Matthew 7, beware of false teachers. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve by his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He warns them against false teachers. John Owen the Puritan said, As some men's sins grow very high, other men's graces grow very low. So be alert. Second exhortation that comes out of these thoughts about these perilous times is know and love the truth. Know and love the truth. Back here in 2 Timothy, the next chapter, chapter 4, read with me verses 3 and 4. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. Paul says, 2 Timothy 4, 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's read it again. The time is coming 
When people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the church is in great danger when we do not know and do not love the truth. J.C. Ryle said, bad coin would never obtain currency if it had no likeness to the good. Counterfeit money out there wouldn't get around if it didn't look like the real thing. Heresies full of truths, but it's not true. That's why the answer is found in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You need to know the Bible. You need to hear it preached. You need to read it personally. You need to know the truth. I ask you this question. Is God's Word the dominating influence in your life? Do you know it is the only infallible rule of faith and of practice? And do you submit your thinking, your attitude, your affections, your will to the Scriptures? I have my old copy of Knots Untied here, 1879 as I recall. Yes, my wife found it for me. J.C. Ryle, Anglican bishop who was writing at a time when apostasy was coming in like a flood in his own denomination. Listen to what he says. Tell me if this isn't applicable today. Many things combine to make the present inroad of false doctrine peculiarly dangerous. There is an undeniable zeal in some of the teachers of error. Their earnestness, to use an unhappy cant phrase, makes many think they must be right. There is a great appearance of learning and theological knowledge. Many fancy that such clever and intellectual men must surely be safe guides. There is a general tendency to free thought and free inquiry in these latter days. Many like to prove their independence of judgment by believing novelties. There is a widespread desire to appear charitable and liberal-minded. In other words, tolerant. Many seem half ashamed of saying that anybody can be in the wrong. There is a quantity of half-truth taught by the modern false teachers. They are incessantly using scriptural terms and phrases in an unscriptural sense. There is a morbid craving in the public mind for a more sensuous, ceremonial, sensational, showy worship. Men are impatient of inward, invisible heart work. There is a silly readiness in every direction to believe everybody who talks cleverly, lovingly, and earnestly, and a determination to forget that Satan often transforms himself into an angel of light. There's a widespread gullibility among professing Christians. Every heretic who tells his story plausibly is sure to be believed, and everybody who doubts him is called a persecutor and a narrow-minded man. All these things are peculiar symptoms of our times. I defy any observing man to deny them. They tend to make the assaults of false doctrine in our day peculiarly dangerous. 
They make it more than ever needful to cry aloud, be not carried about by every wind of doctrine. Does anyone ask me, what is the best safeguard against false doctrine? I answer in one word, the Bible. The Bible, regularly read, regularly prayed over, regularly studied. We must go back to the old prescription of our master, search the scriptures. If we want a weapon to wield against the devices of Satan, there is nothing like the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. But to wield it successfully, we must read it habitually, diligently, intelligently, prayerfully. This is a point on which I fear many fail. In an age of hurry and bustle, few read their Bibles as much as they should. More books perhaps are read than ever, but less of the one book which makes man wise unto salvation. Roman neology could never have made such havoc in the church in the last 50 years if there had not been a most superficial knowledge of the scriptures throughout the land. A Bible reading laity is the strength of a church. So if you're not reading the scriptures intelligently, prayerfully, successively, will you believe and repent? The only way you're going to be prepared for the onslaught in this latter day is to know the Word and to let the Word know you. Which leads me to my third exhortation. I just mentioned it. We've emphasized it many times. Live a godly life. Live a godly life. False teaching and false living go hand in hand. Fourth exhortation, be aware that the battle will escalate. Again, 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13, read them again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So it will not be easy. We always must fight. And even though we should be peace-loving Christians, sometimes controversy is a positive duty. So I've said to you, be alert, know and love the truth, live a godly life, be aware that the battle will escalate, but I want to give one more exhortation, and that is take heart. Take heart, people of God. Apostasy will not succeed, ultimately. Remember, Satan's kingdom is growing, but so is Christ's kingdom, and Christ will expose false teachers in various times in history, but ultimately at the end. So I've mentioned the man of sin. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's read the first eight verses. Second Thessalonians 2, beginning with verse 1. 
Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion first comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, we don't know a lot about this man of sin, but obviously when he comes, he's going to be a great religious leader. Verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Do you see it? Apostasy culminates in the man of sin. This principle that we see at work already now in the world and in the church in these latter days as men filled with self-love, hate God, hate His truth, hate His word, teach falsehood in the church, culminates in the man of sin. And Jesus is going to come and destroy him by the breath of His mouth. As Luther put it, one little word shall fell him. And so the Apostle Paul reveals, God reveals through Paul these things to Timothy. Not so that Timothy, not so that we walk away from here in a depressed state, but so that we walk away alert, aware, and trusting, and believing God will keep his own, and the Antichrist will be destroyed. So take heart, people of God. Perilous times will come, but the hand of God is in it. Take heart in the battle, because the risen, ascended Christ is coming again. And apostasy will culminate in the man of sin, but Jesus will destroy him. Destroy him. As we sang this morning from Psalm 68, and as Elder Valeni read at the beginning of our service, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Apostasy will be done away with. With the brightness of his coming... He will destroy the man of sin and usher in righteousness forever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.